Welcome to episode 194 of Tim Talk, the ultimate showdown of ultimate nerddom. And today, to talk all things DC Animated Universe, we have the dynamic duo of decades-old cartoon rewatch podcasting. First up, exhibiting the most extraordinary capacity for middle age and a young man of 32, he's the Baron of Bond, a jester amongst queens, the daddy of dad jokes, the lord of long, drawn-out intros. It's Chris Lord! And his partner on this cartoon recap podcast, he's a child trapped in a 28-year-old man's body who we literally had to drag out of Disneyland just to be here today. He puts the mate in animated, the art in cartoon, the OG in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, it's Cameron Dexter! And I'm Cameron Dexter. <laughs> and now, let's get ready to podcast! You know what? I'm I'm okay with this one. I'm fine with this one. I think I came in a bit early. I apologize for that. You left an opening. I did. Uh, I, we've we've talked about this before. I think. Have you? Were you ever part of the wrestling like fandom? No, never. Okay. Not even the slightest. I feel like WWE is one I should be a part of that I'm just not yet. Mister Mister Man over there. Vince McMahon. I, I don't give two shits about wrestling. I just saw that there was a wrestling theme involved in the episodes, and I took it and I ran with it. Yes. <laughs> These are getting harder and harder to write. No, I'm I'm <laughs> applauding the commitment. Thank God we only have like a dozen more episodes. Yeah, you can write a dozen more openings. <laughs> oh yeah. But welcome everyone. We're here to talk Justice League Unlimited. <laughs> The Cat and the Canary and the Ties That Bind. Yes. Yeah, so season two, starting off here of Justice League uh, Unlimited. And uh, I'd say already in this season, we're, we're diving pretty heavy into the, I want to say the background characters of the league, but the non-OG leaguers. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of fun. Well, I mean, the second episode is the OG leaguer. The Flash? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was his first appearance in JLU. Yeah, it's his first speaking appearance. That's so weird. In JLU, yeah. He just was nowhere to be seen in any... I mean, he was literally seen in some places in the first season. Yeah. But never had a line. And then, yeah, the only character that Michael Rosamond voiced was Ghoul. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I mean, to be fair, though, The Flash is a pretty significant part of what's going to come up in season two. Yes, because so, he's... He switches brains with Lex Luthor. Uh, is that two or three? That's season three. That's season three. But still, he's a big part of the Cabinet's arc. Um, so we're going to be getting plenty of Flash this season, but it was lovely to have him back. It was. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Shall we uh, Shall we dive on in here to our first episode? Let's jump into it, man. The Cat and the Canary. I love this episode <laughs> so much. Oh, well, we, we have thoughts. But, I know uh, you do. I know it's a product we... of its time. <laughs> But for uh, those who are not familiar with the episode, when Wildcat refuses to quit an underground meta-boxing league, Black Canary recruits Green Arrow to stage an intervention with her former mentor, even if it means having to get into the ring with Wildcat herself. Yes. Okay. Before I shit all over this, <clears throat> what did you love about it? It's I love Ted's story in this and yes. his place in the world. Mm -hmm. as he is a man grappling with his place in time. Yeah. He is a man desperately trying to hold on to his career. Basically mm -hmm. he's being manipulated into fighting these fights as a way to stay manipulated. 
Do you not think he's being manipulated? I don't think he's being manipulated. I think he's doing it absolutely of his own free will. I think it's 50-50. I think he's, he wants to quit, but at the same time, he has no other place to go. That's not he, true. Where else is he going to go? He could just go back to the league. But that's the problem. The league doesn't give him anything to do. Yeah, but... He says he's up on the tower babysitting all the time. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's it's his ego that's keeping him there. This is only of his own volition. Like, yeah, someone's poking him in the right way to make him... Do, Roulette's poking him in the right way to make him do what she wants him to do. But this is his choice, 100% all the way through. Yeah, but it's addiction. Yeah, fine, but still his choice. Yeah, it, yes. At the end of the day, it is his choice. Look, I, I, I only disagree with the use of the word manipulated there. Otherwise, I do agree with you that he has a really good arc in this episode. He's it, the only one that does. Yes. it, it is. An, it, I see it as he is addicted to fighting. Okay. Uh, and this is the only place he can get it out. Okay. And Roulette knows that. And she's using that to her advantage. Yeah. Kind of putting him in these situations where, you know, and also putting him against villains that is as a leaguer, he wouldn't get to fight anymore because mm -hmm. the other members are going to come in first. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love, I no, love he, Ted's story with this. He, he's the only one. I mean, he's still an ass through almost all of this. Well, he, Yeah. He's always an ass. Yeah. But like, even to the point of, Stepping aside so that a whole bunch of supervillains can go beat up Black Canary, his mentee. Mm -hmm. Like, that's his least redeeming moment in the entire thing. Right. And he never really makes amends for that at any point. Yes. <laughs> but, like, like I, I agree with you. I think his, his arc is kind of actually interesting. I mean, it, there's kind of this question that's asked of what role do non-meta powered heroes have in a very meta heavy world yes, that aren't billionaires that aren't billionaires exactly they don't have a utility belt yeah, full of gadgets. A blue beetle or a green arrow yeah. or a batman I, I feel like it it touches on that idea i don't know if it necessarily fully exploits it uh, exploits it to its its fullest capacity mm -hmm. but it's an interesting idea that at least raises if not fully explores yeah yeah because what what are the effects of like being a crime fighter your whole life. I mean, he's been a vigilante since he was 20. Yeah. Uh, and he's now just having to come to the fact that he isn't who he used to be. And I think that shot of him shadow boxing with the photo of his like championship belt mm -hmm. is very telling when you see him unmask himself. The only time you ever see Ted, uh, Ted Grant unmask himself and he's like very gray wrinkled. Yeah. And like, you see that he is an old man. He's not like, gravelly voiced like batman old he's like old old he's legitimately old yeah he's not old in the way that i aspire to be right while still being young but he's still like he still has it like he he oh, said yeah. like i'm ted grant i fight that's what i do yeah and you see him almost crack the atomic skull's skull it's pretty nuts yeah. actually yeah it's kind of an intense scene it's very intense yeah look i'll give you the the ted stuff that i agree with my big problem with this episode is how green arrow is portrayed and how black canary is portrayed. It is very much a product of the time. Yes. Yeah. Like, cause I remember always liking their dynamic. I think I'm remembering double date. Yes. Which will then also be very interesting to revisit in a matter of weeks here. Um, but like, this is really the first episode that focuses on them as a pair. Like, Green Arrow spots Black Canary in the end of initiation, and that's what makes him, quote-unquote, decide to stay mm -hmm. with the League. Um, but, like, 
the first sequence we get of Black Canary, I think it's fucking brilliant. Like it's beautiful. It's so well animated. The fight choreography is great. Like they do a really good job about literally just like taking a step back away from the action and letting it play out in pretty long, continuous shots. And her, like they show that she is one of the most capable hand to hand fighters we've seen in this entire universe. Like, her fighting technique in this at least I think surpasses how we see Batman fight in most of his episodes where like he just tends to just punch people and kick people. But we don't see like this gymnastic, balletic, like really thoughtful choreographed action and fighting style the way that she does. Like she is one of the most kick-ass characters we've seen yet. Yeah. That sequence specifically was like, they definitely showcased how good the animators are. Yeah. making fight sequences and again it's Joaquim DeSantos directed this episode Mm -hmm. again we are now this was this came out February 5th 2005 Mm -hmm. Avatar comes out next week in this (laughs) timeline so he's been spending a lot of time doing overseeing fighting animation here at this point yeah yeah so he's he's well versed in action action cinematography yeah so they know how to highlight that so initially i'm like wow like okay they give her a really great introduction they establish that she is incredibly capable and she even only utilizes her sonic scream at the very end to disable a a truck that's fleeing and as she puts it later on like she has to be very selective when she uses it because she could just kill people with it but it also goes to show that she will go out of her way to just utilize the training she's done over years over her inherent meta ability to be successful as a crime fighter. Yes. So I love how they set her up. They just fuck it up from there on for me because the next we see her, she is like flirting with green arrow and Ultimately, I think that scene, they like they're sparring up on the watchtower. And basically the whole point is that she is trying to recruit him to come help her, quote unquote, rescue Ted from this ring. And I think ultimately the the point of that scene there is that she is deliberately letting him get the advantage over her as a way to like kind of lure him in and draw him into what she wants him to do. So I have a problem with it on two fronts. It's like one, she like the way the most of the scene plays out, it's like green arrow is able to get the upper hand on her. Despite the fact we saw, she was like the greatest fighter in the world. And then the apparent justification for that is that she's essentially like using her sexuality to manipulate him to go do what she wants him to do, which the only reason I have a problem with that is because it's all so heavily done from the male POV through this entire thing. And then even then all the way through it's green arrow still has to be the hero Mm-hmm. and it, all the sympathy is like on him over the course of the episode like when they go and she reveals the mission is to go and rescue ted you know initially he thinks oh you only need me here to give you money to buy tickets to get into this ring and then after that it's oh he assumes that she and ted have sort of a romantic relationships and he's like a wounded little puppy and he gets all bitter about it and he's like whiny because he's not getting you know the attention that he wants and then ultimately he ends up like knocking her out so that he can quote unquote save the day by going and fighting Ted instead of her. And so at no point do we ever see black canary, like really utilizing her agency in any sort of way. And whenever she does, it's basically just to manipulate one male character to go rescue another male character. And none of this is really about her. Right. And I just feel like you could do this exact same story, but in 
someone else's hands wouldn't make her look bad and Green Arrow look good all the way through it. Yeah, I I agree with most of this. Uh, the final sequence where he knocks her out to take her place in the ring, I don't um, I can't see a situation where she could convince Ted to give up meta brawling. I, I think only Green Arrow could have done that sequence of. I well, I mean, because his of, of basically uh, acting he, like he died. In yeah, the he he fakes his own death. We can check that trope off. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, no, I still think Canary could have done it. She would have gone in. She would have gone towed him as best he can. And if he ever got the upper hand, it would have been him realizing that he was literally beating the shit out of like the one person who actually like loves and respects him and someone that he trained for years. And that I think would have had essentially the same effect. But I, I, I don't think he would have won. I think that's the thing. I think black canary would have beaten him because she, you know, she had to, to get him out of the ring. And in that, I think that would have just destroyed Ted's, you know, I don't want to say it's his ego, but it, it's his, his his character, his personality. Black Cat would have died in the ring at that, or Wildcat would have died in the ring at that moment. And okay. then he would have, you know, then it was it was just the spiraling case again. You know, he would have probably been up back on the Watchtower for a couple more months, and then he'd be back in Metabrawling. I Okay, that is, that is a fair point. And I think if the rest of the episode hadn't been so focused on Green Arrow's POV and him being, like, a whiny little shit through all of it, and making himself out to be like this macho hero. If if he, if there wasn't this sort of like constant one upmanship of him over black Canary all the way through, if he had been like kind of okay with being sidelined or okay with not leading the mission or okay with having very specific elements that she needed him for, like probably paying it, get in there or just like being her backup through all of it. I think it would have been okay, but it's him acting petulant all the way through and then going behind her back to do what he thinks he needs to do that ultimately for me undercuts any sort of altruism that moment and just kind of feels like egotism mm-hmm. and that's the big problem i had with it it's like his it's ted's ego and green arrow's ego that are like the things that are uh in danger this entire episode and no one's really actually thinking about black canary at any sort of point and i think it especially just the juxtaposition from how they set her up versus how she's portrayed in the rest of the episode and how she's treated in the rest of the episode just really bugged me. And again, to your point, it's very much of the time. Yes. Um, and I guess I just expected more from them on this, but I should have known better because it's still like a 20-year-old. It's 2005. It's, it's, yeah. Yes, it's it's a 20-year-old Bruce Tim cartoon at yeah. the end of the day. There, there's so. a moment where uh, the, we have a great term in animation and in video games, especially in the anime community, called boob physics. Oh, Jesus. And there's the very specific moment when uh, Black Canary goes into spar with uh, with Ollie. And it's she says the line of like, oh, you want to go a few rounds? And I mean sparring when she takes off her jacket and it's like Jessica Rabbit level boob physics. Yes. On just that one moment. And I'm like, Tim did this himself. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. It's, it's stuff like that. It's like she... She is so sexualized and objectified and her character isn't given that much to do. And the, the whole like it's like individual pieces are like kind of fine. It's just the the sum of the holes when like tips it in the direction of like, oh, you just didn't know how to actually handle this character. Well, even though you did in the first two minutes, you handled it great. Yeah. And you just totally let it down after that. 
for for the argument on Green Arrow's ego, because I think that is. Wait, a big we're gonna part have an argument episode. trying to defend Green Arrow's ego here. I am. I am gonna not. Okay. Yes, I am for part of it. All right. Green Arrow. This is the second time we've seen him team up with anyone in the league, and he was yeah. brought specifically to help Black Canary. Like Black Canary specifically reached out to him. There are aspects of it where like she knew she could manipulate him. That's why she went to him. She knew she could manipulate him, and he had like the capital, and also like. I'm sure in a fight, the competency to actually like back her up. Well, I think there's also an aspect of he is still kind of an outsider of the league. She couldn't have gone to other people who like lived their life in the watchtower. Okay. She needed someone who's still a little skeptical to the whole situation and who wouldn't go to, to Martian Manhunter. Okay. And yeah, we sure. know that's we a, know that's Green a good Arrow reason, do that. good reason to recruit him. Yeah. So this is his, we can assume probably not his second mission, but still one of his early missions. We saw in the first time that he still kind of doesn't trust the other heroes. Like, he still thinks what he does is best. Very Batman mentality. Mm -hmm. And so bringing him on the mission, this is his first time he does have to play a sideline. The mission isn't about him. And he doesn't understand that to, until the point where he has to make the sacrifice. You know, the Superman speech at the beginning where he has to make the sacrifice. I know it's it's getting in the way of Black Canary's storyline, yeah, but, like, him making the ultimate sacrifice is bullshit chivalry. Yes. Yeah. So, like, that's where... It, again, like, there's good reasons why she would have picked him. But, again, like, it's his ego that is framed as being in danger this entire time. And it's specifically that it's ego. I don't say he's in danger. I say it's... No, it's like, it, it's... He's, his ego is being wounded all the way through the episode. And it's portrayed in a way that's meant to make us feel sympathetic for him. Because he's not getting the attention of the girl that he likes. Oh, I didn't feel any sympathy for him. But the show is designed to make it seem like we're supposed to. I saw it more That was as, the intent of it. I saw it more as growth from him of having to be a team player. Oh, I didn't Where see he's that. never had to do that before in his career. He, but he never is a team player. He just does it himself at the end of the day. He doesn't actually team up with her. He just takes her out of the game. But he does in Double Date. Then they're more of a team. Well, yeah, but one. that's not this episode. I'm saying this episode. But you need this episode to understand the start of the chemistry so you can understand the, I'm, the I'm palpable chemistry saying, of Double Date. I'm not saying you don't need this episode. Like, I'm going to begrudgingly probably consider it canonically critical at the end of the day. I'm just saying that the way this episode handles his dynamic with Black Canary, I found really frustrating. Because it's all about his ego. And it's all about Ted's ego. And it's supposed to be about Black Canary, but it's really not at all. It's a... Yes, it is about Black Canary's relationship with Ted at the end of the day. Yeah, it's ultimately about the male characters. Black Canary's relationship with Ted. Yeah, it's mostly about Ted. It's mostly about Green Arrow. Ted she, having she's to cope in with... In the middle of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, at the end of the day, it's like she's not part of the finale. Like, at the end of the day, it's it's her. Or it's She's knocked out, and it's Green Arrow versus Ted. So... I mean, she's that one moment of, like, Sonic screaming, bringing down the house. It's like, cool on you, but... Yeah, yeah, that was that was a pretty lackluster shot. It felt unnecessary. Because like, again, why don't, I, I why don't think, they just like shut shut it down? Yeah, I think they they had to find a way to make it seem like she actually did something because they wrote her out of her own episode mm -hmm. at the end of it. Fine. <laughs> Look, I mean, I again, that's like I that it all of that is a a really big problem for me. That being said, I still found this episode like mostly fun to watch like it does have great fight throughout sequences throughout i do like that we get to spend time with those three characters i may not love how they're portrayed here but i love those characters so mm -hmm. just having them on screen is a sort of hollow victory in some way just to have them there and interacting is kind of fun we we do get some like fun background cameos 
too of other random villains. I I don't think I was paying enough attention for that. I did look it up. We got a uh, we got Bloodsport, who we only now know because of the Suicide Squad. Big Giselda. Uh, exactly, and then we also got Sportsmaster, who obviously uh, played such yes. a big role in uh, Young Justice. They were kind of thrown in there. I love Sportsmaster. He's fun. Yeah, I mean, like, none of them get speaking roles here. They're just kind of no. like putting in the background. But like, and, and this idea is interesting. Of in a world now where metas are so prevalent, stuff like this would pop up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it kind of makes sense, too, that it would be off the league's radar because it's just so it's so underground. It's something that they're not really concerned about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and they're, they're not really causing a lot of harm. No, ultimately, at the end they, of the day, they, yeah. they really wouldn't shut it down. Yeah. Like, I, I get how they do establish that Wildcat being a part of these fights is getting in the way of him being a hero because he's supposed to be back up for canary on that mission in the opening sequence and he misses it because he's in the middle of a, a fight mm-hmm. so i get that there are costs to him being a part of this um and it's getting in the way of him doing his job but yeah like at the end of the day it's i mean underground boxing rings are probably never just generally a good thing but in this universe where there's so many awful things going on it's not that bad. Not at all. Yeah. This would be a nice weekend in Gotham. It's mostly just the villains being up on each other. Yeah. You know, and like maybe this is their way of like trying to get a little bit of training in to try and go toe to toe the league, which they're ultimately just going to fail at anyways. So, but you know, you know, it's, it's not a, a legal way for them to make money, but at least it's one that doesn't really hurt other people. Exactly. Except the other villains are beating up on. Hey, but you know, someone's got to take an L somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's a cool idea of bringing this in. I think it comes back again. It does. Too. Yeah, I think Roulette comes back around again. Um, okay, I did I did have another question for you, though. Mm-hmm. So as we alluded to, the Canary basically says, like, she announces to the, the whole arena that, all right, I'm going to fight Wildcat. And if I beat him, you have to ban him from fighting. Mm-hmm. And if I lose, you can do whatever the fuck you want. I don't care. So the fight is supposed to be Wildcat versus Black Canary. She gets knocked out by Green Arrow. We've covered how stupid that is. Wouldn't Roulette have to refund those bets because the fight changed? Not in an underground ring. <laughs> that seems really unfair. It does, doesn't it? Yes. Like, I would have put money on Black Canary to win. I would not have put money on Green Arrow to win. But I, don't think, I think that's the thing. I don't think anyone was putting money on Black Canary to win. I think some people were. I think, well, because they'd only seen a Wildcat fight over the past couple weeks, Mm -hmm. and he's not lost. And so why would you, you know, again, 2005, why would you put money on the girl coming in the ring when you have this very experienced guy who's never lost a fight also there? I mean... Again, it's not sound. It's it's 2005. It's not not sound. I feel like they should have had to, like, refund those bets or at least change it up a little bit. Where's the time? I don't know. You have 22 minutes to get this fight in. They they run the ring. They can do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. I mean, you see how fast they clear the stands. That's true. (laughs) Because it feels like so much time has passed. So, yeah, there's the uh, Green Lantern and Wildcat box. Wildcat beats the shit out of Ollie. Mm-hmm. It's very fun to watch. Um, and then then it, you know, he checks his pulse. Uh, Ollie's dead. Mm-hmm. And then it's a crossfade to empty stands and just Black Canary in the ring with him. Like, 
has like an hour passed if they yeah, just left his dead body yeah. on the ground while everyone left like at least someone's gonna come out with a stretcher it's not gonna be actual like it's not gonna be an actual uh doctor yeah someone's gonna drag his body out so they can clean the ring for the next fight <laughs> that's true they get they get a quick turnaround here yeah and it's not like roulette was freaked out by the fact that someone finally died in the arena she's like oh my god this would be great for our ratings who knows what can happen now right so it wasn't like she was shooing everyone to get out of there so they can try and cover this up or yeah dispose like, of who the else body. do you want to kill ted yeah. <laughs> also i do, i do feel like she should have been worried a little bit at least because again this is the first person that would have died obviously didn't but to their eyes would have died in that ring not only is the first person that died it's a member of the league this isn't going to go unnoticed at all. I I wonder if there's a sense for villains at this time of the JLU where it's like they still kind of if there's no core member there, they're still kind of like, eh, we can get away with a lot more. I don't think so. You don't think so? No. I mean, I, I can see where they could know they would be fine sparring with Ted fighting ted because he's not gonna say anything right because he really shouldn't be there in the first place so like there i can see there being this sort of like mutually understood like we're just not gonna talk about this sort of thing with him specifically but with green arrow showing up i'd be like uh, well now he's dead well the, and exactly one he shows up it's like this is maybe not great and then two he's now dead this is really not great i mean honestly if i were people in the audience i probably would have run out of that theater that Amphitheater be like, oh, this is going to get bad. I'm getting out of here right now. Batman's going to be here soon and no one wants to deal with him. Well, they're, they're not honeybees, Chris. They, it's not like Batman can smell his fallen comrade. Batman knows everything at all times. <laughs> I bet you Batman knew about this and was just like, I don't want to deal with this. This is not my problem. I, in my head, Alfred is there <laughs> in his free time. Placing bets? Yeah. <laughs> and maybe whipping up a lovely souffle for the audience. Of course. <laughs> So no, I, I like the idea of this, this arena fight that's happening here. Also worth noting that this episode has like a ridiculously stacked voice cast. Oh, it's incredible. All right. So just right off the top, uh, Miranda Baccarin is Black Canary. So most people I think would know her from Firefly slash Serenity and then also the Deadpool movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess also Gotham. She was Leslie Tompkins in that. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so I, I love her. She's yeah, so she's, cool. She's amazing. Uh, Dennis Farina is Wildcat. Do you know who Dennis Farina is? I don't. I he was on I think Law and Order for a long time. I'll, I'll bring up a picture. You you would recognize him when you see him. Like very, um, he's I'm pretty sure now passed. Yeah, he passed in 2013. Um, but like just this, you got this iconic like iconic oh, tough yeah, guy yeah, yeah. mustache, almost in the like the vein of uh, like a Burt Reynolds sort of look mm-hmm. going on. And I'm pretty sure it was Law and Order that he was on for like many many years um but i always met him very fondly from the movie get shorty have you ever seen that i've not with john travolta um renee russo and dane devito from like the early mid 90s like 95 or something like that i haven't watched in years i don't know well how well it holds up but he's just like this ridiculous kind of like tough guy but he's hilarious all the way through he has this great moment where he he gets 
he gets off a plane. It's like a gangster kind of movie going up, like a, a comedy gangster movie. He gets off a plane. He walks to the, the curb outside the airport. He stands at the curb like five feet in front of a taxi, makes the taxi pull forward for him to then get into the cab. He gets in, just goes to the fucking airport. <laughs> like it's he's he's awesome. So I was really glad to see him thrown in there. I think a perfect casting choice for Wildcat too, to have that bit of the, the bite to the voice there. Um, and then Virginia Madsen, who's just a, a very prolific actress uh, jumping in there as roulette, which is kind of fun too. But like, yeah, great, like great people. And it's fun to see that even in the episodes where there are no original leaguers who have any sort of um, voice presence, we only see Jean in a brief cameo at the very end of the episode, kind of serving as a, a, a sort of therapist for Wildcat. But no other leaguers make an appearance, none of them talk. And despite that, they still bring in like, top tier talent yeah for this which is awesome yeah also yeah also that end button we just talk about for it's 2005 nice very progressive it is actually openly yeah. talking about therapy in a kid's cartoon yeah they have one little redeeming thing yeah and even ted makes the point like he's not trying to fight against it yeah he's like you know this is gonna suck and i have to do it yeah. and you know uh black Canary makes the point of like these are fights you can't win by yourself like you need people yeah and that's great great button it is a good button i have nothing else to say okay. <laughs> you're, you're giving this look like he's gonna say he's gonna argue with me on this it's waiting no like it again it's overall pretty fun there's some really good pieces in there like these characters i was just really disappointed how they handled black canary specifically and and maybe again I, I i remember their dynamic much more from double dates maybe we'll see that's very different when we get to that episode um, but you know, and, and I guess maybe I had started to have like a little bit of hope just considering, especially how well they've handled Shaira of late, like all the way through Starcross and into JLU, like they have made her like a really fully fleshed out character. And I, I even think that they mostly handled Vixen even pretty well, even in Wake the Dead. I mean, she's, she's sidelined via the plot. But we can see from just how they animated her body language that she is not happy about how she's being sidelined, but she's going with it. Like, I never feel like anyone ever, like, shut her down over the course of that. Like, she's, you can actively tell she's choosing to handle the situation as she's handling it because she's watching and observing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I kind of feel like this episode was putting Black Canary down in a lot of ways. I, I think they just used her in a very different way. Because the three women we've seen so far, Wonder Woman, Hawkgirl, uh, Hawk and Vixen, are all combat-first characters. And they think with their fists. Whereas Black Canary is not doing that this episode. And I think it's the first time, outside of like Zatanna, who we don't really spend a lot of time with, mm. we haven't seen a female character act like this. Yeah, it, it all just... It, I hate this put a too fun a point on it. It all just feels like it was made by men. Oh, it and was. They, and that's they just, the thing. And they, yeah. And they just didn't know how to do this in a way that didn't make her look bad. Yeah. To make all the other guys look good. And I think that that's also a sign of like that writing is, yeah, yeah. They, they don't know how to write characters that just don't punch their way to victory every time. Yeah. So, or they know she's capable of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. She can punch her way to victory, but let's also like hypersexualize her to make that her key thing in this entire episode. Yeah. Is that she's sexy and can manipulate people boo physics all that boo physics so mm-hmm. yeah i mean again overall fairly fun but mm, 
Mm. Had, had some issues. Oh, I love this episode. Had some issues. Well, okay. I, I see your points. <laughs> yeah. and I, I acknowledge your points. <laughs> but for 22 minutes, I will ignore your points. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, any other things to cover on this one? Uh, would you like to know a little bit more about Ted Grant? Oh, actually, I would, yeah. Uh, so he has a pretty predictable origin story. He, he's very old. Uh, uh, Wildcat started in 1942. Okay. So very, very classic origin story. He mm-hmm. started as a boxer early in his career. He was like early 20s starting as a boxer. Um, his two managers, uh, Flint and Skinner, uh, were kind of like setting up fights for him, and Wildcat didn't know about this, and they drugged one of his opponents. I don't know if that means that they like drugged him to lose the fight for Ted to win or drugged him to like juice him up with like 1942 steroids to make Ted lose. Okay. But whatever happened, they overdosed the opponent and he died and they basically framed Ted for the, for the murder. Oh Jesus. Uh, So Ted is arrested. Flint and Skinner know that they're still kind of in the hot seat. And so they set up another hit to take Ted out. Uh, And while he's in police custody, they kill the two police officers and again frame Ted for their murders. Why not just kill him? Well, because they couldn't. He escaped. Oh, okay. Because he's he's Wildcat. Uh, So he he survived an assassination. The police officers held in custody were killed. Uh, Ted then fled the scene uh, after being wrongly accused. While on the run, he... (laughs) I I always questioned why I loved Wildcat so much. And I think it was this moment, which I must have just subconsciously known. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, while on the run, uh, where is it? Uh, he comes across a boy who had been robbed of his Green Lantern comic. Aww. The boy described Green Lantern, which inspired Ted to become a vigilante. He creates the costume of a large black cat, calling himself a wild cat, and vowed to clear his name. He forced Flint and Skinner to confess and clear his name of all charges. Uh, Ted then continued to fight against crime as Wildcat. Wait a minute. Was he... Before Green Lantern? Yes. <laughs> Does this make sense? No. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, what? Yeah. How is there a Green Lantern comic in his comic? I assume this is probably a mix of original origin and like New 52 origin. Okay. But even then, like, why would there be a Green Lantern comic book in a world where the Green Lantern exists? Great question. Because <laughs> obviously this would be Alan Scott Green Lantern. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I should just stop overthinking it. Mm. Yeah, uh, but this is a part I'd never heard before, and we never see this version. I'm kind of glad we don't see this in, in on screen in either this or Young Justice. Uh, during World War II, Ted became the JSA and the All Star Squadron. He has a romantic relationship with uh, a time displaced uh, Queen Hippolyta, which I didn't know about. Which is cool. Oh, uh, but in 1945, Zatara cursed Ted with nine lives adding to the cat trope, which allows him to recover from fatal injuries. Oh, but only eight times. Yes. Okay. Hmm. I mean, that fits. But we don't know if he can just continuously give him nine more. That's where he's going. Nine lives. It has to be in quantities of nine. That is such brilliant comic book logic. Yeah. Like his character's name is Wildcat. What can we do to make more cat like? Oh, I know. Nine lives. Yeah. A thing that is actually not even true about real cats. It's not. No. <laughs> I'm very curious where that came from, though. Same, actually. Like, why is this specifically nine? Yeah. Did some guy just see a cat, like, jump out of a window nine times, <laughs> and then the cat didn't come back? Like, that was it. Nine he burned them all. times. Why do people think cats <laughs> nine have lives. nine lives? I, mean, I You know, I think, I think Wildcat is 
a, a great character that isn't often very well, or not to say he's often well utilized. I think when he is, he is done well. We just don't see him a lot. Like he gets a lot of really good stuff in the brave and the bold. Yes. Um, oh yes. He's so great in that. I, and I, and that's, that one is, um, I think that's R. Lee Emery does the voice of that, which is really fantastic. I forget. Is he in young justice? I don't think so. I think he's in the background okay. because there is this same episode in young justice. Uh, where it's all the women of the league, right? Or is that in this season still? Uh, I remember Fire is there fighting in the brawl. I think that's that is the season because that is. I don't know if it's uh, this season, but it's it's the follow up episode to this. Yes, okay, that is what I'm thinking. I think it's of Grudge then. Match. I want to say that sounds right because it's Huntress and Black Canary in the final match. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's more and more roulette episode. I think that's the one you're thinking of. Yeah. I, I think roulette is in an episode of young justice though. I think so. I don't quite remember because I, because there's a couple version, this trope I really enjoy. Cause I compare this to winner take it all from teen Titans, mm-hmm. which is when the grand champion comes in and takes all of the guy fighters to set up their own, who is the strongest on earth. Yeah. And then Robin takes it a little too seriously because he's over competitive. Right. As he always does. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isn't that also kind of the plot of uh, Teen Titans versus Teen Titans Go to some degree? Um, like he, he pits the, the two teams against each other and all the guys like super keen on fighting and the girls are not. Yes. Yeah. Well, they yes. said that's that's one of the biggest misses of of Teen Titans is they set it up where there's a second episode because they Robin wins, he defeats the grand champion and they all get teleported back. And then a second later, all the female characters get teleported in Mm -hmm. and like, welcome champions of earth. It's time to prove who's the strongest. And you see like Bumblebee and Starfire and Raven um, and Hex and Jinx is there. Okay. Uh, And it's like, I'm like, I want to see this. Like, this is so cool. And then they just never talk about it again. Oh, okay. I think her name is Hex. There's a character you only see in one episode who's like very, she has a uh, British accent or Scottish accent. Uh, She's in all black and she has like red laser hands and you see her fixing a dam and they give her one of the Titan communicators. I don't know. That's fine. When we get to Titan talk, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Cause Jinx is the girl is the, the witch with pink hair, right? Yes. Okay. That's one I remember. Mm -hmm. I don't remember most of the rest of that show. It's so good. I haven't seen it in a long time. Long, long time. Uh, all right. Any other things on this? Uh, the reason people think cats have nine oh, lives. Oh, there we go. All right. Uh, is they, is, uh, Egyptians connected cats with the sun god, uh, Atum Ra. Uh, Ra gave birth to eight other gods. And so it is kind of the cat represents the nine gods of Egypt. Oh, okay. So the nine lives, yeah, one for each god. Okay. Well, that makes sense then. That makes sense. All right. It's not just some drunk counting cat jumping out a window. But I feel like, the Egyptian context was it around the fact that because yeah I mean like the modern version is like you know the cats can like jump out a window and land on their feet and so they'll always survive like I don't feel like that's what the Egyptians are maybe going for at the time no but I mean like cats represent I mean cats were holy animals right they represented the gods right I'm just saying like that idiom has now shifted yes. meaning quite a bit mm-hmm. yeah before it used to mean like they had nine lives because they were holy and thus had like I guess like were nine times as worthy as if other beings sort of Maybe maybe it was like they lived nine separate lives. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that makes more sense than just like yeah, they can now fall, one life nine fall, times, fall out of a pyramid nine times and be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Oh, we're dumb in the modern world. All right, should we move on to the uh, the ties that bind? Yes. All right, so a lo- lot of setup on this episode here, so bear with me. After the death of Darkseid, a power vacuum has been left in Apocalypse that pits granny goodness against Vermin Wunderbar for control of the planet. Uh, when Wunderbar takes Darkseid's son Kalibak hostage, Granny Goodness takes a hostage of her own, Oberon, the manager-slash-mentor to Scott Free, a.k.a. Mr. Miracle, uh, in an attempt to force Scott to rescue Calabac. So Miracle and his wife, Big Barda, turn to the League for help, but when Jean refuses, the Flash goes rogue and joins Scott and Barda on a mission to free Calabac in exchange for Oberon, uh, which would then in turn hand over control of Apocalypse to Granny Goodness. Lots going on here. A lot going on. So much going on. <laughs> um... I mean, it's funny because there's so much setup in this episode, but the overall story is actually pretty straightforward. It's like once you get all the exposition out of the way up front, it's just that trio on a mission to Apocalypse to rescue Oberon. Yeah. And it's super and fun. Calabac. Yeah, exactly. And Calabac out of, of, of necessity. But it's really fun. It's so, yeah, this this is an episode growing up I never understood. Because oh, I okay. never watched this part of Justice League. Oh, you never oh you hadn't seen like the previous season. I had no idea who Calabac was. I had oh, a vague okay. idea who Darkseid was. Granny Goodness meant nothing to me at the time. Okay, so you didn't understand like who Darkseid really was, why he was absent, why Calabac matters. Yeah, I didn't know the new gods yeah. or any of that stuff. Who is who's High Father? Mm-hmm. I I was coming in so blank <laughs> these episodes when I was young. And now to finally have context. I'm like, oh, this makes... I still have so many questions. Yeah, a lot happens. Why is there a German ruler of Apocalypse? Why not? I guess. You know? I mean, we do know German is the base language of the universe. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't... I think this is the only time we see him, or it's the first time we've seen him, I think, in this universe that I can recall. I would. I don't ever remember seeing him again. I feel like we would have talked about a man named Vermin Wunderbar. Yeah, because he would have done the accent every time. Every single time. Yeah. To everyone's chagrin, mostly yours. Just me. (laughs) (laughs) You seem to have a lot more support online than in this room. (laughs) Oh, thanks, guys. (laughs) I know who my real friends are, Cameron. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Yeah, I can't can't not do it. Right. I mean, you have to. Yeah. It's it's in my contract. It doesn't sound right saying it normally, which is why I will not say it. Yeah, just just vermin wunderbar. No, no. that hurts to hear. No, it's not. It's just vermin wunderbar. Yeah delightful yeah it's a weird episode it's a very weird episode um and i always thought mr miracle's power was i thought his ability was like he could always escape yeah uh that's not the case what he has no powers oh he has like super strength and super because he's a he's a new, new god, god. oh yeah. Well, okay yeah like his 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 skill set is that he can escape a situation but yeah i don't think he does it through like magic or anything like that, that. i always assumed growing up that he had it through magic like that was because oh. I, I was thought, like that's such a weird magic ability just yeah. being able to escape like what is the point of that i mean I have these very specific circumstances yeah i think he pretty much capitalizes on it to the best of his abilities yeah so you know he's getting trains dropped on him yeah which okay let's let's start let's start there <laughs> okay because you're right there are lots of questions to be asked i have a question right up front so when we first meet Scott, he they are doing a practice run, mm-hmm. mind you, on his next like escape trick. So it's him encased inside like a metal capsule well, first suit, handcuffed, handcuffed, 
full body cuffs. Full that's right, full body cuffs inside this metal suit thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then covered in some sort of like nitroglycerin or something like that or whatever. Like so he's frozen, like Mr. Freeze style frozen the outside of it. And this is done on a platform in the middle of a stretch of train tracks. Like literally the train tracks run in either direction on the other side of this platform. So you kind of assume if a train's going to be involved, the train is going to go along the tracks and hit him. Yes. <laughs> thus the reason for having tracks. Instead, a old school steam engine locomotive is dropped from a twin prop military style helicopter onto Scott. And of course he's fine. So why are there train tracks? One. And two, why are they going this far during a practice run? Look, as the resident magician of the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a little peek behind the curtain. Please do. Please help me understand what's going on here. I, I thought that was hilarious when the helicopter came in with the train. Yeah. Because it, it's the, you know, magicians are very famous for like the setup, mis, like, uh, misdirection, mi- misdirection, and then payoff. Yes. And I think having it on the train tracks, expecting this damsel in distress situation where the train is going to come and destroy the suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Per as you would expect, yeah. But then having it dropped, <laughs> go wait. It is funny. It, I think it's hilarious because it's very unexpected. Mm-hmm. So that that part is kind of funny. Um, but, and it would make sense for a stage show. Like obviously they're practicing in the middle in the middle of the desert. Yeah. But if they're doing this on a stage, okay. But also Cameron, mm-hmm. if they're doing this on the stage, how the flying fuck are they dropping a full size locomotive? You you attach it to the ceiling. You're not having the helicopter come in. But it's just How weighted do you get up top it already. Inside the building. I don't know, man. What's his face made the Statue of Liberty disappear? I don't have all the answers. <laughs> like what's what stage door is big enough to squeeze in a full size locomotive? And then what what Well most of them are like sound sound stage doors, so the back's just fully open. Okay, but even if you can get inside the damn thing, what theater has like construction crane level equipment that they can hoist a full on locomotive? It's a cartoon, engine? Chris. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> for all we know fucking superman's holding it up the whole time i am willing to believe the impossible (laughs) but not the implausible on this one but anyway so he's a new god fine he's a new god it's all a setup to show like yeah scott can get out of anything um and then granny comes in and and kidnaps oberon when they're not looking because then we jump to the the watchtower where the Flash is complaining about how he's not treated with any respect by the rest of the League, and he's commiserating with elongated man, and while they're having this conversation, they're playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Yes. Which is just delightful. It's so cute. Like... But then devolving to the argument that every kid has when Flash wins. It's like, no, it's not fair. The Green has longer arms. Yep, yep exactly. It, it's, it's so childish... And it's done so well because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, you know, again, I was I was kind of bemoaning how the the writers handled um, Black Canary this last episode, but I will say that they really know how to handle Flash in general, but especially here, where it's like he is aware of the fact that people don't necessarily take him seriously, and it it does hurt for him. Like he he's a hero. He's done some really incredible heroic things, and he is kind of just treated as like the comic relief and sidelines. I mean, literally he didn't even appear in the last season at all. So whether that was like a meta commentary that they put into this or not, I think it's generally true of how this universe has treated him, that he is not always treated seriously. Um, But he also wants to do the right thing. And and I think that 
that debate that he has with Jean, because Jean basically says to uh, Scott, like, we can't come help you because we would be tipping our hand in a civil war that could ultimately have disastrous effects for the League and Earth. We can't get involved. Basically. Yeah, and this, everyone on Apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is an outside matter that we cannot get involved in. And I totally understand that very broad view. Like, that does make the most sense. But I also understand the Flash's perspective. Like, well, but you're ultimately deciding to sacrifice one life for everyone else's. And that is, like, this kind of constant hero's debate, right? It's like, you know, can you sacrifice one to save millions? Or can you do whatever you can to still try and save that one as well? Yeah. And the Flash is the kind of guy who's going to find a way to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's the Lex Luthor conundrum again. Of how many leaguers we have to sacrifice oh, right, to save yeah. one Lex Luthor. <laughs> save... None! We just let him die. Nope, <laughs> okay. all of them. The entire league. We don't need to save Lex Luthor. If anything, doing so is only going to come back to bite you guys in the ass. Keep Stay tuned as yes. we get the rest of the season. Strong foreshadowing. Yes. Heavy, heavy foreshadowing. Um... Well, no, I think there's a lot of parallels between this episode and the previous episode, uh, Cat, and, Cat and Canary, because it's the same setup. It's Flash is sidelined. He wants to be in the action. Ted wants to be in the action. He understands why he's not. Ted is old. Flash is unreliable in comic relief. And it's Ted doing what he can to get his fix and Flash kind of really just playing more into the trope and just doing what he wants still. I, I, I think you're stretching. I think you're stretching a bit there to try and retroactively make amends for the mistakes of our previous episode. No, no, I, I, I genuinely think that there's a lot of parallels between the two. It, they're both doing what they want to get their way to find their way back on the field. Yeah, but like Ted, I, I don't want to keep talking about fucking. Bl- That's <laughs> fine. Yeah, it's fine. I, I say the difference here is that Flash is trying to be a hero. Yes. And Ted was not. He, yeah, Ted is trying to be a fighter. Flash he just trying to be here. tried to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas the Flash is still trying to be a hero. Um, but it's like, it's also an unexpected combination of characters. Like, uh, when I saw that it was going to be a Scott Free episode, I was like, oh, well, that'll be cool. And then I'm like, wait a minute, the Flash is involved in this? What a weird addition to that story. Not someone I would expect to throw in there. And, you know, Scott's point is like, actually, he could be really helpful because he can search the whole damn thing for us in an instant, which he does. Um, but that whole dynamic actually works pretty well. And I, I do think it's kind of interesting, too, because once they get to Apocalypse, they boom tube over there. And then, you know, we're, we're kind of these like flashbacks of Scott's life there when he was uh, basically like, being like tortured slash raised by Granny Goodness, as all these four children of Apocalypse are. And we keep seeing him, like, honing his escape craft. And eventually we learn, like, okay, the, the X-Pit where Calback is being kept is where he escaped from. So it's his worst nightmare to go back there. Because, like, the one place that he never wants to return to because it's literally his lifelong torture happened there. But when he gets there, it's like, oh, God, they've changed everything. So, like, okay, we bumped up the stakes. However, I don't feel like that ever actually impeded his ability to navigate through that place, escape things, and finish out the mission well he, he never leaves the first floor yeah that's the thing i i love this episode for scott because he knows his limitations and he also knows not not even just his limitations he knows his team's skill set which is something okay. we mock john for, for not, not knowing <laughs> where like point. he could 
go like he could play Batman and be like, this is my place. I I, I have to take lead in this. I have to be the one that uncovers all the booby traps. He's like, yeah. no, Flash, he's somewhere here. You go for it. Uh, Barda, there's a bunch of people over there. You want to go beat him up? Cool. I'm just going to chill here. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice unlocking handcuffs. Yeah. And like he fully understands that and fully accepts his role. He's like, yeah. I'm just here because pretty much it's my manager. Yeah. And like I could fight, but Barda's better at it. She enjoys it more. She does. I'm let her do that. Yeah. I could go and try and find things, but I'll probably get myself in trouble and they're going to have to save me. Flash can just run past everything. So why am I? Why? Why? Why try? I'm just going to. Yeah. You guys got this. Yeah. He's a good team manager. That one. He is. Yeah. He should be running the league. <laughs> he should be running the league. But like the, the only to my recollection, the only real trap this guy has to get out of is he they're, they're running through a hallway. The doors come down. Scott is stuck in one by himself. And then a, a tube opens up in the ceiling and starts flooding with water. And then we, we kind of like, we see it filling up and we see him kind of like angling up towards the actual like water flow, like spigot itself. And then the next time we see him, he's just like casually leaning against a wall outside because he, he made it out. So obviously like he's the master skate artist. He can do it. I think that's the only time we actually see him get, have to get out of anything inside the expert itself. Right. Right. And, like, I, I do kind of love that they just set up these ridiculous things and he gets out of them no matter what. We don't see how it happens. That's very comic booky, and it, it just kind of plays into the fact that it doesn't matter how ridiculous the situation is, he will get out of it. But it did, again, feel odd. Like, it didn't feel at any point like the fact that the whole space had changed had any impact on what he did. Like, they, they threw that in there to, like, theoretically raise the stakes of the episode, but they kind of did it just in... They just said that the stakes have been raised and never actually showed that they had an impact on him in any sort of way. And I mean, it's again, it's a short episode. They probably didn't have time to do it, but I would have maybe liked a beat of him like actually being challenged to try and escape something. Yes. I, I, I think part of that is he's, like we said, he can always get out. Yeah. That is his, his greatest skill. And like he's been through the worst of what Granny can throw at him. Like he's beaten everything already. Yeah. So even if it's a different layout, it it could like we don't know if it's new traps or if it's just they're laid out in a different way. Mm -hmm. So it, it could be that it could be that he's already escaped this before. And we just haven't seen it. Yeah. And, and maybe I think what it needed in that moment was just to show that he hadn't escaped it before. Like maybe he like oh don't worry I I I know what this is I've gotten out of this before and then all of a sudden it's not what he expected. Because mm -hmm. it's it's funny like he there's kind of there's a like a brief dialogue exchange i don't remember the, the specifics of it but it's basically miracle talking about how he has a plan and flash saying like oh i just kind of always figure it out as i go which makes sense that literally is what the flash does but at the same time like a huge part of scott being able to escape from things seems like he improvises to some degree like in that situation with that water flow through there it kind of feels like he had to improvise a way out of it yeah it just it felt a little like it was hard to get a grasp of what they were trying to do in terms of challenging him. Like if the idea was that he only knows how to handle things that are pre-planned, we never saw a moment where he was stuck having to improvise on something. Or again, like if he had never done this before, it was never shown that it was a challenge for him not to have that mapped out ahead of time. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that is just a case of Chris. It's... Do you want this to be a two-parter? No. Oh <laughs> God damn it! What have I wrought on this world? I mean, I want more of Scott. Yes. Hands down. I don't think we really get a lot more of that. I don't think so either. That I recall. Yeah. Um, and, and he's not a character that I know a lot about. I know that it's um, 
oh, how am I blanking on the guy's name? There was a really famous run. Uh, is it, it's not Tom Taylor, is it? No, fuck. It's it's someone's yelling into the microphone because I can't remember the name of this. But recently there was a really good comic book run around him. It's supposed to be amazing that I've been meaning to check out for years. Okay, it's the same guy who wrote the um the Vision comics where Vision like has a robot family. Oh, I love those. It's the same author. And okay, I'll, I'll I'll look it up because I think you do know more about. Which I know about yes. Scott Free, <laughs> yes, I, I would love to know. Uh, so we kind of get most of his backstory in this episode. Tom King. Tom King. Thank oh, you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tom King. Okay. Sorry, um, continue. Yeah, it's he, both him and Barta and Ted all kind of have fairly predictable backstories mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, so Scott Free, originally the son of... Wait, wait, hang, on, hang on. Scott... The little I know about Scott's background of him being raised by Granny Goodness on Apocalypse is a typical background. No, sorry, is is not far from what we see in this episode. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. They they hit very similar beats. Okay. <laughs> uh, originally the son of High Father of New Genesis, he was traded to Darkseid uh, in exchange for Orion as a peace uh, offering between worlds. Scott grew up under the care of Granny Goodness and is routinely tortured. Uh, and who routinely tortured him and others as part of Granny Goodness's orphanage. Uh, as he matured, Scott learned that he had the natural talent for escaping and overcoming seemingly impossible traps. His talent and his love for freedom is what furthered him uh, by Himon, uh, a natural troublemaker uh, and one of the gods whom Darkseid uh, faces, who is never able to, to capture. So he's like the one, like kind of uh, Scott's role model. Okay. Uh, Scott refused to be hardened by the planet's cruel abuse and kept his innocence uh, and hopeful mindset in such darkness. He fell in love with Big Barda, a warrior who was the leader of the elite squad of women warriors known as the Female Furies. Uh, She, in turn, was won over by his innocence and goodness and later married him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eventually, Scott Free escaped and fled to Earth. Once there, he became the protege of a circus escape artist, Thaddeus Brown, whose stage name was Mr. Miracle. Brown was impressed with Scott's skills. Uh, and while there, he befriends Brown's assistant, a dwarf named Oberon. Oh, when Thaddeus Brown is murdered, Scott Free assumes the identity of, the identity of Mr. Miracle. Uh, Barta later followed Scott, uh, and the two of them used their powers, equipment, and skills to wage war against Darkseid, who is still interested in recapturing both of them. Uh, and this is the part that I didn't know about, but I mm-hmm. guess is a big part of Mr. Miracle's storyline, uh, especially related to Darkseid. Unknown to Darkseid, Scott eventually acquires the complete anti-life equation. That oh. big mysterious question mark thing. Yeah. Uh, Darkseid's ultimate desire. However, he uh, his will was strong enough to resist the temptation to use it. Uh, and for a time, Scott was appointed the new leader of New Genesis after the wake of High Father's death, but relinquished, relinquished the position to uh, and God powers to Tachyon, who I think we've met in one of the episodes maybe it sounds kind of familiar uh not wishing to be tied down by the constraints of such leadership i did not know that about him that he he got the anti-life equation yeah neither he did, did I. it yeah i i read a few more uh like stories of, of his character arc and i guess at one point big bartha's uh big barda is murdered and it's the only time he ever uses the equation oh okay uh because he thinks because he thinks a new god did it and for a while he thinks orion killed her mm. and he is like on the hunt about to kill orion oh okay yeah i <clears throat> i haven't really read a lot of stuff with him the only thing that comes to mind any prevalence is the superman batman comic supergirl so it's since been adapted into i think superman batman apocalypse the animated movie but in that 
Darkseid captures Supergirl, and so Batman and Superman go and recruit Barda and Scott to help them go to Apocalypse mm-hmm. to get her back. Okay, that's cool. Which is a pretty cool like sequence there. Yeah. Actually, no, that's true. They show up, and Scott's gone, so it's just Barda. They bring Barda along, and then Batman borrows a bunch of like Scott's equipment. And this is a great moment. I think it might even be the movie, too, where Batman basically... Um, like puts a bomb inside one of the fire pits of apocalypse. And he basically just stands in front of dark side and goes, give me the girl or I blow up the entire planet. And dark side looks at him and goes, if this were the Kryptonian, I wouldn't believe you, but I actually believe that you would do this. I love that. <laughs> it's just like, again, writers will always find ways for Batman to have these like ridiculous, badass moments and justify it. But you know what? Most of the time it works. Yes. <laughs> uh, I also looked up big Barda mm-hmm. for a quick moment. Most of, again, it, her backstory is also pretty similar to what we see in, in her other storylines. Yeah. She was created on Apocalypse to be the head of the Furies. Mm-hmm. Uh, she kind of had her heart turned when she met Scott and realized that she can be good. Uh, she moved, they both moved to Earth together, where she kind of just became a housewife, and she was never happy with that. <laughs> and so shit. this is a very 80s story, and I love this. <gasps> oh, no. Uh, while working with Oberon, uh, he convince Barda to create her own group of like wrestlers and fighters and they created the BBBW the bad and beautiful the bad and beautiful babes of wrestling so it's basically their version of glow it was exactly their version of glow which i think is hilarious that is amazing where Barda led a group of women who just kind of became like uh they kind of became the new furies as she called them but Mm. they were she was the only (laughs) non-human the rest of them were just human wrestlers and they just became vigilantes of new york that's great because we never hear about new york in dc world that's true actually yeah it's always replaced by metropolis yeah or gotham yeah yeah but i do love that she's the protector of new york with her wrestling women that show i would watch yes 100 percent, i would watch that show absolutely And Scott's just, like, there in the background in case she stops by. It's like, hey, I'm here. I'm off to go do another escape artist thing. Okay, bye. Oh, and he's fully supportive. Yeah, he totally is. Yeah, he's in every match, front row, screaming. He escapes whatever death trap he's in just to be there to see the show. Of course. And to to show his support. And then off he goes again. Yeah, because it's it's one of the things we don't see very often. A good, equal relationship. Yeah, actually, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I I like their dynamic. Again, it's not one that I see play out that often, but when I do, I think it's always really fun. Mm -hmm. I really gotta go read that Tom King series. I've heard it's great. Yeah, yeah. if he did the Vision one, then I'll definitely go check it out. That Vision comic is so much fun. That's what I've heard. It's it's on my list. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A long, long list. Um... Okay, there was there's a few little moments in this that I love, just like little lines, like when when Vunderbar is trying to uh, convince Calabac to join him, he's like tried everything. He's like, okay, I have my my one final resort, cake. He just pulls out a piece of cake. <laughs> Calabac says no, so then he just throws it away to a bunch of parademons. Like, actually, I have I have one more. And then he this I thought was very bizarre. He pushes a medal on his 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 war jacket that it's like somehow also like a little switch and then it drops down some sort of like, I don't know, mind torture device that then never goes anywhere. But it's right. just such a fucking random moment of him trying to bribe Calabac with cake. I know it's, I, I, and then also love too when they're, when flash and Scott and Bart are getting ready to leave and Scott's basically giving the typical like hero speech. I'm like, no, you don't have to come with me. And Bart says, well, I'm, I married you. I'm coming along. And flash just says, well, I'm not that committed, but I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> 
And another little moment. It was fun to see Jean out of the watchtower finally. Yeah. Which I don't think he has done since JLU. I think he's always been up there. So even if it's just a brief moment to uh, to trick Granny into revealing where Oberon is being held, it's still a fun little moment to see him out in the field. It's very fun. Excuse me again. Do you think part of it is John is worried how humans will react to non-Kryptonian-looking aliens on Earth after the Themyscarin attack? I think... Not Themyscarin, sorry. Thanagarian. Thanagarian. I think there is something along that. I, I know that there will... I know that there will be an episode coming up. It may not be until season three. I cannot remember that <clears throat> addresses kind of why he stepped away from humanity. Um, and I think that might've been a part of it. I don't remember specifically though, but I think it's a good theory. And I, and I, I think that might actually pan out to be in context true as well. Okay. We, we all, but we also know that he can turn, he can, he can make himself look human. He can, yeah. He does but, have John Jones still. Yeah, I, he can, but he, I think he also doesn't want to. Right, because to him, that's lying. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of like the mystique thing in the X-Men movies. It's like, you can pre- pretend to be someone else. You're just like, well, but I shouldn't have to. Right. Um, and I think that might be a part of Jean as well. Like, they, they did a really good job with that in... Um, <laughs> the Darwin Cook comic, New Frontier, which I must always find oh, a way one? to shoehorn into this podcast, a la the Empire film podcast. Um, my God, imagine if Empire film ever covered the New Frontier. I don't Wait. think they will, because I think that movie came out over a decade ago, and it's probably before that podcast even existed. But just imagine, Cameron. Hey, they can always go back. My worlds collide. Just like we always say we're going to go back to the Superman movies. We always say it. Always say it. Um, but yeah, like, they do a really good job in that, where he has his very traditional alien look, very similar-ish to the way it's done here, but even even more otherworldly. Um, and then he realizes that he doesn't want to frighten people anymore, but he also doesn't want to pretend that he's not what he is. And so that's when he adopts like the more human-looking green Martian Mantor look that we know. Yeah, which is kind of a cool little moment. Yeah, and it's also you know one of the main story points of Miss Martian. In that's true. Yeah, uh, Young Justice. Oh, Miss Martian. Mm-hmm. I do love her. Um, but yeah, th- this is. This is just super fun. I really like this episode. Me too. I know. Now good... that I have context. Yeah, context. Context would help a lot. If I mean, it's one imagine you can just kind of watch and just enjoy it for what it is. But yeah, there's there is a lot of setup here mm-hmm. to explain everything. And it's it's just new gods and new Genesis enough where like if you don't know anything about it, everything still kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. As I was reading deeper into Scott Free, there was one paragraph. I thought I'd copied it over, but I didn't where it was talking about an otherworldly being came to steal the anti-life equation from Scott to protect the fifth dimension. And, and at this point, I'm like, I, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I've gone cross-eyed. Yeah. I, it's so obscure at some point. Yeah. It gets really fucking obscure. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, this one's not quite that bad. Uh, but yeah. a fun episode overall. And I, I don't... Oh, I do want to talk real quick about some of the, the voice cast once again okay. here. Um, maybe not quite as uh, stacked as our previous episode, but some really good stuff. So obviously, we get Carl Lumley and Michael Rosenbaum returning as Jean and Flash, respectively. We get Ian Gruffin as Mr. Miracle, who you may not know him by name, but he was Mr. Fantastic in the first two Fantastic Four movies. Oh, yeah, I love that. I always really liked him. I feel like he just never quite got the momentum in his career, unfortunately. Yeah. But I always really liked him. I feel like I've seen him in one other thing. 
he pops up in little things here and there, even yeah. to this day. But it's never like obviously like Fantastic Four would have been like his big break, and it just it didn't really pan out because let's be honest, his movies aren't particularly good. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen him in a long time though. Yeah, I mean Chris Evans stole all the all the limelight. Oh, I mean if we if we are creating a list of moments that clued me into my sexual awakening, we have to include Chris Evans running around in just a ski jacket and that. Yeah. <sighs> Anywho. Um, oh, and then, of course, we have Ed Asner, uh, the recently late yes. Ed Asner returning as Granny Goodness, who I think we've talked about this before, but I mean, a brilliant piece of casting for this show. Like, he is Granny Goodness to the point where watching Young Justice, that is one of the roles that I find the hardest to hear anyone else voicing because he's so perfect for it. Uh, yeah, I fully agree. Yeah, all the other, the other ones I can kind of like, okay, I've heard a lot of iterations, but for him, he's he's just so good. And, and I mean, just also, I mean, uh, what a fucking amazing career he had. I mean, just between this and, and Elf alone, those two. Oh, and Up. Yeah. Those three are enough to just like, Carl. yeah, cement him in, in so many just like iconic pieces. But then, you know, he has a whole television career, which predates both of us. Yeah, I mean, he was pretty much old. He was, he yeah. Made I mean, it to what, late nine, mid 90s? Yeah, I am. Um, I actually met him. Wow. Yeah, he, when I was, I've, I think I mentioned this show before, but I was PAing on a, a doc series all about Generation X called Generation X on Nat Geo. Um, and he, we interviewed him because, if I'm trying to remember correctly, he was one of, like, I think the first ever divorced couple on TV in the Mary Tyler Moore show. Okay. And so, oh, wow. I didn't realize he was on Maritime War. Yeah, he was on Maritime If I'm remembering correctly, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And so that that was like part of the reason I interviewed him was that he was one of the first, like, he was the first part of a couple that was divorced on TV, which, you know, would have had an effect on Gen X essentially. So that's why we interviewed him. But really, really lovely guy. So, um, yeah. And then, of course, we get uh, Michael Dorn, aka Worf from Star Trek The Next Generation, returning as Calabac, who's always great. Yes. And, uh, and then also Jerry Piven, who shitbag though he is is kind of a good casting choice for elongated man who's like kind of a shitbag yeah yeah <laughs> so. all those stretchy people they always got they just they're not to be trusted yeah <laughs> so but yeah another really fantastic voice cast but um yeah anything else on this uh do you remember the mad mod episode of teen titans uh yes i do i would love that episode with Mr. Miracle. I would love to see Mad Mod go against Mr. Miracle. Oh, that could be fun. It'd be very fun. Because Mad Mod kept coming up with all those like crazy um, traps and stuff, right? Yeah, he, he kind of, it was basically a bottle episode of Teen Titans where mm-hmm. he had them trapped in his mansion where every room was a different That's uh, right. like death trap. Because uh, Mad Mod always reminded me of the X-Men villain Arcade who had like, a very similar look and almost exact same thing of like, he basically would like capture heroes and put them into these ridiculous death traps. And I think he was the main villain of an X-Men game from like sometime in the nineties. So the X-Men arcade game. No, it wasn't that. I don't think it was that. I think it was something else. Cause I think it was a console game. Okay. Not a cabinet game. I don't know if I have a hard time remembering stuff from 20 years ago, I have a much harder time remembering stuff from almost 30 years ago. Fair. So yeah, the senility is already starting to kick in. It's great. Hey, <laughs> we're doing great. We're doing still great. young. We're still young. Itch. Uh, but yes, no, I, you're right. That would be really fun to see those two go up against each other. So, uh, but yeah, that's it for me. All right. Uh, well then let's just do some plugs and wrap things out here. Let's do so, it. uh, what do you got to plug this week, Cameron? 
Uh, I have a show plug and a personal plug. Ooh. I have two personal plugs. Oh, my. Um, so I don't remember if I plugged this before, because I, I kind of took a gap after watching the first few episodes, but I just finished season two of Mythic Quest. Oh, yes. Uh, the series on Apple Plus. Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus. Yes. Uh, about the gaming industry, mm-hmm. which in itself is in a very unique state right now, because it's also like the show talk and like brings light to all of the big issues going on in the gaming industry, especially revolving around women in the gaming space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then at the end of the episode, you see that it's funded by Ubisoft who is in the middle of a lot of this drama. <laughs> so oh, it's like, did you watch the thing that they're making fun of you for? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but the show is great. The first episode, the first few episodes, like it's very, um, like always sunny mm-hmm. esque where every character is unlikable. Yeah. But you kind of see how they work together after a few episodes and then they're all just so charming with each other. Uh it's it's so fun. And I I think it ends after season two. I don't think there's been an announcement of a season three yet. Okay. But it ends on a great no, I I'm I'm happy if that is the finale. If it's done. Okay. Yeah. It, I mean, okay, so as someone who's not super keyed in on gaming would I be, would I maybe enjoy it less? Uh, no, because it, it's a workplace comedy that just okay. happens to be about it. Because I, I feel like you would have very similar insight working in film as to what they're doing. Because you have the creative producer who's fighting with the executive producer who's fighting with the programmer who's fighting with the marketer. Um, oh, okay, I see. It, yeah, it's a lot of big voices who all have their own point. Like their department has a reason to be there. Yeah. But they all hate each other. Oh, okay. And so it's like the programmer who wants to make this beautiful thing because like the world needs to see this art and the marketer coming in is like, oh, but no, we could sell that for a lot of money. So like if you can just make that into something where we can make like we can loot box it, mm-hmm. that'll be great. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. And then them fighting the creative producer and be like, why do we have to do this? And he's like, well, what if we just make it a giant sword? <laughs> and it's like, no. <laughs> and, and, and it makes sense that it have a bit of a it's always sunny feel because it's it's Rob McElhenney is the star. I think he's also the creator of it, right? Yeah, and Charlie Day is the head writer. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, those guys are great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, very fun. Okay. And then yeah, there's like the, the script writer uh, is a guy who was a famous um, sci-fi writer of the uh, fictional mm-hmm. sci-fi writer of the eighties. who only had like one good book. <laughs> and so he's coming in with these horrible outdated storylines. That's pretty fantastic. It's, it's a really, it's great chemistry. Okay. How many, how many episodes? How long are they? Uh, 30 minute episodes. I think 10 or 11 per season. That's doable. Yeah, pretty quick. That's very doable. Okay. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. Mm-hmm. Short to the point. Yes, exactly. Get in, get out. And great. Yeah. And great story arcs. Okay. And also, it's a kind of like a community feel as All well. Right. All right. I like that. Uh, plug two is you plug this a lot, and so I'm happy I can finally be a part of this. But I've branched out of the podcast space, uh, and I sorry our podcast circle. Okay. Uh, and I finally guested on uh, Ideal Remake. Oh, that's Gap. right. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And you did Avatar. Which Avatar? Blue people. Okay. James Cameron's <laughs> avatar. Yeah. I was about to say, like, well, okay, which of the two avatars are you obsessed with? Oh, right. Both. Both. So. <laughs> I would never touch uh, Last Airbender. See, I think that becomes part of the challenge. Like, I, I've been considering um, pitching to Sam that we remake Casablanca. 
Like, which, Ooh. see, that's like, I think there is something interesting being forced to remake the thing that you should never, ever see remade. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 I might pitch that to him at some point. Okay. I mean, if you do, I I couldn't imagine rewriting Roger Rabbit, but I, I'd take on that challenge. I think I think it'd be fun, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But so you did, you did Blue People Avatar. I did Blue, James Cameron's Blue People 2009, world's biggest box office hit uh-huh. ever, Avatar. Yeah. Until it lost it for a little bit and then got it back. Yeah. Yeah. Only by fifty million, which makes me think James Cameron definitely has an extra fifty million dollars somewhere. Do you think he just he just did it? Pumped it up himself? <laughs> he might have. Yeah. Yeah. He seems like that kind of ego. I feel like they're gonna re release it again though, because <clears throat> Oh, they definitely are. The, they have to. The next movie is not coming out until what, twenty next December. Twenty two? Yeah. So yeah, like they're gonna re release it at some point. I haven't seen it since it came out. And like I would probably go watch it again. If I'm gonna go watch it again, I'd probably rather go see it again in the theater. Absolutely. So uh but yeah it comes out today same day as this podcast no no that's nice mm-hmm. uh it's fun it's, right it's fun it's, it's so very fun. fun yeah yeah uh so yeah go check that out mm-hmm. uh and then third is i've loosely plugged them every now and then whenever they come out because they've been very sparse throughout this year but i had uh another animated episode come out that's right uh, yeah Minnie mouse went to fashion week oh yeah uh it's on youtube and instagram and that's it. I'll, I'll send you the link. Okay. Uh, but it's cute. It's a minute and a half. Yeah. It's lovely. Congratulations. Thank you. So wait, uh, remind everyone again, what are the ones you have put out so uh, far? So it, I've done everything on the Positively Mini series mm-hmm. that's been popping up around YouTube. And so we did a Polka Dot Day episode, uh, meditation, like how, how to just be calm, uh, a gardening episode, a Galentine's Day episode, a summer episode. Mm-hmm. Um and that's it that's come out oh an olympic episode which was really fun uh and we have two more coming out this year oh nice yeah oh I, and yeah i've watched them they're really charming thank you they're super sweet it's a lot of work because it was just me yep just you but you do a great job <laughs> thank you they're all very like positive and uplifting yes which we need more of these days i try yes along those lines are you still keeping up with ted lasso of course oh it just keeps getting great oh my god just keeps being amazing Oh, yeah, this most recent episode just so oh, good. it was hard so good yeah i don't like when i base a lot of my weekend on how well ted's doing at the end of the episode oh okay so when he's not doing well i'm like this is not gonna be a good weekend i i, I will fully acknowledge i cried i cried yeah. the, i cried at the end of that episode it's like god damn it mm-hmm. i have emotions i know i don't want to i don't want to i just want to be happy right now <laughs> <I know>. ted <laughs> beard yeah <laughs> Since, since we're already plugging a bunch of other Apple TV Plus shows, why not throw one more onto the fire? Go for it. Sponsored by. Uh, this time, I'm plugging For All Mankind, Ooh. which is maybe the most dad show ever, which is part of the reason I love it. It's the alternate history of the space race where the Russians beat the United States to the moon. Okay. And then the like political and scientific ramifications of that that follow. Um, it's great. Again, it's... It's alternate history, and it's the space race. Like, the middle of the Venn diagram of, of dad shows. Yes. Uh, so I fucking love yeah. it. It's, I mean, all they need is cool cars, and that is your oh, perfect... Oh, oh, are there? Do not worry, because very famously, all the astronauts in, like, the, the 60s into the 70s drove Corvettes. They basically, like, struck a deal to, like, buy a Corvette for, like, a dollar, and then it was basically just, like, free publicity for Chevy and Corvette for, like, all the coolest people in the world to be driving around in Corvettes. That's hilarious. So like, literally in the first episode, after they get the the news that the Russians have beat them to the moon, they go like on like a little mini cannonball run of all of them like racing their Corvettes to the bar together. 
that's that's very funny. yeah so it's okay, don't so worry it's, yeah you're there <laughs> yeah. it hits all of the dead points you've reached chris climax I have. <laughs> it's the thing is like it is really well written um and just really smart like i i love alternate history i love it um and so it's interesting to see like what what little changes precipitate big changes in the world um and so the first season is you know uh, like mid well, i guess end of the 60s like 69 through 73 and then the second season jumps forward into the 80s and then it's like look what happens to to nasa and everything in the 80s still during the cold war but things are a lot different than they were before it's really good just really well written great characters like there are times when the the cg looks a little like tv budget but for the most part they do a pretty good job with all that okay um yeah and it's also just it's kind of cool just to watch and see what would have happened if the country were still really invested in space exploration and like what would have happened if we kept going to the moon and really kept evolving that technology so i yeah i love that i ask that question a lot yeah because i think we've probably i don't think on air but i think off air i've pitched the question of like do you think um hollywood has turned itself to be against exploration now because everything is now fear-mongering not fear that's that's a harsh word we've changed exploration from a positive to a scary idea in both in space or yeah I, I guess yeah i i, I don't agree with that to some degree. I, I think yeah now everything is like disaster movies mm-hmm. um or like yeah sci-fi horrors or something like that Plus, I, th- I think we are more aware now, especially, of how bad colonization is. And so I don't That's think... That's a good point. I, I didn't look at it from that angle. I don't think we're quite as keen on um, glorifying that in the way that we used to. And uh, even if it's exploring space and it's an uninhabited planet, it, it might still be a little bit hard to, uh, to go around some of those problematic elements. So... That is a good point. It's a very good I point. I have not looked at yeah. it from that angle. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, that being said, like, you know, I, I, I love anything having to do with, with space travel. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really good show. I recommend. Again, it's like 10 episode seasons. They're longer. They're like, they're oftentimes like a little over an hour, like an hour and change. Okay. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a quick watch. I burned through like a season and a half in a pretty short period of time. So well worth a watch. Okay. I'll check it out. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that uh, does it for us this week. We did it. We did it. We will be back with our next episode, and we will be covering... Ooh. Ooh. What's next? The Doomsday Sanction with the return of Doomsday. Okay. Yes. Not the return of Sanction. The return of Doomsday. Very exciting. Uh, And then Task Force X. (gasps) Ooh. Yes, very, very exciting. Ooh, I'm seeing that both of them are a story by Dwayne McDuffie. Oh, and okay. the second one's The Tell Plays by Darwin Cook. Oh, dear to my heart, Darwin Cook. Um, very, those should be two good episodes. So, like, that means we're the, the Cadmus stuff is going to be ramping up here, ramping up fast. Uh, so that's me very, very exciting. So, tune in next episode for that. Uh, until then, you can find us at Tim Talk Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail. Yes, 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 yes. You can find me at Lordifer on pretty much just Instagram, let's be honest. Fair. Yes. Uh, if you want to see my art, you can find that at Cameron.Dexter on Instagram. If you want to see my face, you can find that at CamDexter underscore Adventures. Boom, boom, boom. I'll be back at Disneyland this weekend. You're back in Disneyland. He's back. I'm back. Back, baby. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will see you then. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bum, 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 bum. Wait. That's, no, that's the wrong one. That's the old one. <laughs> yep.
I think maybe you should take a lead on this more now. You, you, you have a much better singing voice than I do. No, I don't. It's still off key. 